Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you. Another Thursday evening, we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. We are into week five of our study, and I was asked this past week, how long do you think this is going to take? And I will share with you what I said to the fine young man the other day. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) That's just where I'm at. You know, the book of Genesis took a whole lot longer than I originally thought. But my dear friends, when you go through a large book like that, verse by verse, what ends up happening is, you know, you don't get so much sidetracked as much as you get swept up in the beauty of the narrative. And to that, um, praise God. And so what I said in the beginning, I hold to. This study will take as long as it needs to take with respect to making sure we do the job we need to do. All right, that being said, we are in chapter 2, and we are in, uh, what, Uh, verse 11, so why don't I go ahead and read uh, verses 11 to 25. Now, in these series of verses, my friends, in this particular episode, which is the flight to Midian, we have one of those, I wouldn't say epic narratives from the book of Exodus that excites us as readers like next week's might. Uh, next week's reading of Moses encountering the burning bush. But we do have a very important narrative in Moses fleeing Midian. Uh, So let us go ahead and read this passage. One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting, and he said to the one who was in the wrong, Why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to the defense and watered their flock. When they returned to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon today? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom, for he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out, Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. All right, now, uh, maybe to your surprise, I think we need to spend some time with that first verse, verse 11. Uh, We know from the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 23, that Moses is how old but 40 years old. 40 years old. So my friends, (laughs) nearly 40 years of Moses' life is lived how but in anonymity, right? Now, I don't know about you, but that has my attention. It is a lot like the life of Jesus, right? Uh, Whose much of life was lived in anonymity. Anonymity and silence, what, roughly 30 years? And here, my friends, as I was meditating over this passage, I was drawn to Christ's anonymity. I was drawn to Christ's silence. And yes, this is a footnote at best to our study on Exodus, but one that uh, I am led to reflect briefly on. Uh, Pope Paul VI, while reflected upon the importance of the Holy Family, reflects upon this anonymity, this silence. This is what he has to say. Nazareth is the school in which we begin to understand the life of Jesus. It is the school of the gospel. Here we learn to observe, to listen, to meditate, and to penetrate the profound and mysterious meaning of that simple, humble, and lovely manifestation of the Son of God. And perhaps we learn about imperceptibly to imitate him. Here we learn the method by which we can come to understand Christ, and this we do so, Pope Paul VI says, in silence. Pope Paul VI continues, May we return to an appreciation of this stupendous and indispensable spiritual condition of silence, deafened as we are by so much tumult, so much noise, so many voices of our chaotic and frenzied modern life. O silence of Nazareth, Paul VI exclaims, teach us recollection, reflection, and eagerness to heed the good inspirations and words of true teachers. Teach us the need and value of preparation, of study, of meditation, of interior life, of secret prayer seen by God alone. My dear friends, why do I hit the pause button to stress the words of Paul VI on this evening where we are made to consider the book of Exodus? Well, because as I'm drawn to the anonymity of Moses' life. I am so further drawn to the anonymity of Christ's life. And this, my friends, as it teaches us something about silence, is very important because we live in an age where we consume so much entertainment by way of the television and binge-watching. We consume so much social media. We do have to rekindle that sense of of silence and really maybe better said, a sense for the sacred. It was by virtue of silence and obedience that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, right? It was by virtue of his wisdom and stature that he he would claim uh, what was sacred and what was not sacred. You know, today with social media, 
we are faced, I think, with unprecedented challenges that should force the tough questions. I mean, is it important to take a, a picture of every meal we eat and every bar we go to? Snap in a picture of this or that. And don't get me wrong, I love to take pictures of trips I take and in holidays I celebrate, but, but I have to ask myself the question, am I so preoccupied with broadcasting my every moment that I am no longer entering into the importance of that moment? Huh? I mean, are we in that camp where we find ourselves preoccupied by, by posting something on Instagram or Facebook that that's all we think about? This can become a kind of noise, you see. There is a beauty that lies in the anonymity, the silence of anonymity. And that, my friends, is what we can, can rightfully call sacred, that which belongs to God. It is enough, my friends, that God sees. The world does not have to see everything we do. So, my dear friends, I reiterate, do we let the silence of one's life speak to us? Let us live our lives in the simplicity of the Holy House of Nazareth, rekindling that sense of nobility that arises from the dignity of silence. All right, let us re-engage this text. What do we read in verses 11 to 12? One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his kinsfolk. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So here you have Moses, who was brought up and educated in Pharaoh's own palace and becomes one of the most important people of his time. However, <laughs> he clearly retains his Jewish faith, huh? He is clearly ready to profess that, that faith and defend his people even at the cost of his life if necessary. This is what we see in his killing of the Egyptian whom he found beating a Hebrew. And oh, by the way, my friends, let's be clear on something. In doing so, he was acting in accordance with the lex talionis, which of course laid down that justice must be done either by the authorities or by whoever suffered the injustice. You know, I think for some of us, we have forgotten that the whole idea of retribution or an eye for an eye did help bring about human equality in history. I know we look at that today and we say, well, no, we don't live like that anymore. Okay, I get that. But in the development of law, this lex talionis, this eye for an eye, actually helped develop a deeper sense of human equality. And this is what Moses was living by. Okay? All right. How about verse 14? He answered, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? <laughs> I love that verse. I mean, here you have a question that drips with a prophetic irony as Moses will indeed claim such a title over the people of Israel. Now, the irony does not stop there. Because what else do we read in these verses but that Moses would sit down at the well where he would receive his wife Zipporah? That's in verse 21, right? Did not Isaac find his bride at the well in Genesis 24? Earlier I was talking about our study on the book of Genesis. We looked at that in great detail. 
Did not Jacob find his bride at the well in Genesis 29? My dear friends, I might suggest something to you here. Husbands encountering their brides at the well is uber important in the Old Testament because the pattern we see here already being established in the Old Testament, Isaac, Jacob, uh, Jacob and Moses, will find its fulfillment, of course, in who? But Jesus. Minus the passion narrative, what is the longest episode in the New Testament? But the encounter between Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Where does this take place? But at the well. And what lies at the heart of that great narrative? The dialogue. And I want to go into this dialogue, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time in this, but so let us go to John chapter 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, again, this is the Samaritan woman, Samaritan woman, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Why would the Samaritan woman now call this man she just encountered a prophet? What happened in that brief exchange which I just read for you? Well, clearly, with respect to the five husbands, the woman has endured multiple marital struggles. But as many commentaries highlight, and here I'm thinking of the Ignatius commentary, and I think this to be, again, quintessential to to our discussion this evening, the woman's life parallels the historical experience of the Samaritan people. Remember, go back into First and Second Kings. What do you have going on in the very important books of First and Second Kings? Well, the break of the 12 tribes. Remember between Rehoboam and Jeroboam? Rehoboam takes uh, the 10 tribes up north and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin stay south. The ten tribes go up north, and they worship in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. And what do they do? What do those ten tribes do? But they intermarry. And when they intermarry, they they introduce five male deities into the religion. Those deities, those pagan idols, those false gods, what did they call them? Baals, B-A-A-L-S. In the Hebrew, those translate as husbands. Husbands. I want to read these verses to you again. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. What did Jesus just say? For you have had five false gods that you worshipped. Those which you called husbands. But they're really not your husband. I am the one that you now call husband. And oh, by the way, where are they at? But at a well. At a well. All right, so again, to recap that very important passage. Jesus calls out 
the false worship of the Samaritan people. And he does so to this Samaritan woman. And he says to her, something new and greater is here before you. The answer to your deepest desire, your new husband. And I will be made your husband in the Eucharist, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Amen. Amen. All right. How about these last three verses? Verses 23 to 25. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. My dear friends, the point of these verses is simple. To remind us that God is very much at work. Uh, Humanly speaking, it looks as though everything is working against Israel, right? But these verses remind us that God is very much informed, that God is very much involved, that God is very intent upon fulfilling his purposes and promises with respect to Israel. God is aware, aware of Israel's affliction, and he has heard their cries for help. God is mindful of his covenant with Abraham, which is also with his offspring, right? Isaac, Jacob, and the, and the 12 resulting tribes, even, even as down the road we were just talking about uh, when they will be broken. No matter how bad things may appear to be, God's purposes are going to be realized. Certainly, this section ties together the agony of God's people in Egypt with the deliverance about to take place in the following chapters. And what's more, he responded because he heard the cry of the poor. They were groaning. In the past, I have talked a great deal about the importance of groaning. What do we read in Romans chapter 8? But it is the Spirit who teaches us how to pray. And the Spirit does so by way of the groaning. The deep groaning when we push ourselves athletically, physically, and it gets really intense, but we want to push through. What do we do? We groan, right? We groan. Ah, right? Push yourself. Ah, right? When you do so in the spirit, this is powerful prayer. Jesus himself looked up to heaven and he sighed. He groaned. Hmm? All right. Now, as we look to wrap up our thoughts with chapter 2, there is, I think we could say, an overarching truth that seems to run itself like a current through this chapter, and, and will so really throughout this book. Uh, Andrew and I, I think, touched upon this last week, and that is the providence of God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the grace of God is often worked out in the lives of men Through the providence of God. God's providence, we could say, is his work that is often unseen, or maybe better said, undetected by men at the time of its outworking. God's providence, my friends, is God's purpose being worked out in ways that we would never have expected. And through people whom 
we would have never chosen. Maybe the least expected person is the one that God chooses to reveal to you that least expected truth. Take a quick examination into your life and in those moments that God has revealed himself to you. Maybe, just maybe, it was in and through a person that you just simply didn't suspect. The Pharaoh and his daughter, right? What are we talking about now? The providence of God is that unseen work of God which moves men in history toward the goal which God has foreordained and which he has purposed and promised. We just have to cooperate with that grace, huh? I mean, think through the events of this chapter in the book of Exodus. If we were to use the the grid of providence, Pharaoh's decree that every baby boy should be cast into the Nile endangered the life of Moses and all the Hebrew boy babies. But what does it do? Result in the preservation of Moses and potentially, oh, by the way, because the Pharaoh probably would not have sustained or kept that law after his daughter pulled this life from the Nile, right? Pharaoh's daughter, who was probably the most unwanted finder of the basket, turned out to be the one who could most effectively be used of God to further his purposes for Moses and Israel, right? You know, I want to make an observation here. We have ideals, right? We have ideals. And here I'm thinking of the United States of America. We have this ideal of who should or shouldn't be our president. But what I would challenge you with today is that maybe, just maybe, God might use an unsuspecting figure, the last figure you would think to bring about his greater plan. Brothers and sisters, no one, no one could have predicted that Pharaoh's daughter would have been the one to save Moses. But historically speaking, historically speaking, she was the one who could most effectively be used by God to further his purpose for Moses and Israel, right? Even the slaying of the Egyptian, Moses' flight to Midian, his chance encounter the well and his marriage to Zipporah were all part of God's workings, if you will, providential workings. And as we uh, transpose this point, this truth, to our life, we should be present to that simple fact that every detail of your life, of my life, every incident, every failure, is employed by God providentially to further his purpose. While this should in no way make us relax in our desire to know God and his will and clearly be obedient to him, listening to him, it should offer to us a confidence, an assurance that even when we fail, if we are pursuing God, he does not fail. The bottom line is this. Are you identified with God and with his purposes? Or have you set yourself against him? Hmm? Moses, his parents, and all of the other fallible saints were ultimately, my dear friends, blessed by God 
because they looked to him in faith to fulfill his promises. Pharaoh and all of the disobedient Egyptians were providentially used of God, but were destroyed because they did not trust in him. We should let these truths resonate in our heart, that God's providential grace might be a comfort to us as we place our trust in him. Huh? And if you have not yet placed your faith in him, if you have not yet placed your trust in him, then go to confession. Seek forgiveness. Be reconciled with him this day. Huh? I think we noted it last week. God writes straight with crooked lines. He has been doing this from the beginning of time. And from the beginning of time, he has shown us that the better way is always to trust more. And again, this is faith. This is our confidence. Confidere. With faith, with trust is what this word means. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of the book of Exodus chapter 2. This very rich chapter that has allowed us to get inside maybe of how you have worked in history and ultimately how you are the protagonist in history, constantly drawing us, luring us closer to you, never removing our choice, but inviting us. An invitation that is always luring us to beauty, truth, beauty, and goodness. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.